This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Stephen Pimentel. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Alex. Uh, it's great to have you. And I'm really excited for the conversation that we're going to have today uh, because we're covering a brand new work, a work that's really caught, um, caught the internet by storm, um, has emerged as a, um, a, a pretty popular book in a surprising category. So the book we're covering today is called uh, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy by Kostin Alamaru. And uh, this is a work that's actually was originally uh, written as a PhD thesis um, for Yale and then later published um, on Amazon uh, as a book. And since its publication a few weeks ago has emerged as number one on Amazon for all of political philosophy, number three in ancient Greek history, and 2000, uh, top 2000, in the top 2000, somewhere around, I think, 1700. Um, overall for book sales on Amazon, which is pretty incredible um, given the uh, the topic and, and the fact, uh, the category, as well as the fact that it is a PhD thesis. I mean, not many theses, theses uh, sell that much um, as, as popular books. So um, there's been a lot of discussion online about, about the author, about where this book came from, about the topic. Obviously, it has a pretty uh, provocative title, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy, that raises a lot of questions. Um, and I wanted to have Stephen on today to talk about it. And so we are going to get into the core of this book today. And one additional factor I would add in, sure. in how remarkable its success has been is the fact that it's a self-published book with almost no pre-announcement. Um, Costin announced it on Twitter, like, I think no more than like a week, maybe, um, before it was actually released, I mean, very, very short time, did a, like a couple of tweets, and that's it. So did not have behind it the marketing muscle of a big five publisher, nothing like that, just a self-published book. So that, in addition to all the factors that you mentioned about it being in political philosophy and so on, it really is quite remarkable how successful it's been. Yes, as well. And I will say that... Um... For people that are enthusiasts or academics of political philosophy, I think the book does make some very novel and interesting worthwhile contributions. And for more casual readers who are not as familiar with the field, I think it's also quite useful as well if you can uh, stomach a little bit of the uh, the references and maybe become familiar a little bit with some of the source material. Uh, I don't think, I think the book is widely actually pretty accessible. It's written in such a way that it uh, is not, you know, the author himself says is not uh, boring like a typical thesis often uh, is. And so I think you don't need to necessarily have read all of the things that are referenced in the book. Obviously, the, the glossary is quite large, um, but a few of the key texts uh, might get you well on the way to having a good understanding. And even if you haven't read, you know, almost anything uh, that's referenced, uh, I'd say the author does a pretty good job of uh, giving decent inline quotes and other references so that it is reasonable to follow. That being said, I will just get into the sort of statement or restatement of the core thesis of the book, which I think is done pretty well on the back blurb. Uh, and we'll get we'll move from there forward into the beginning of the introduction of the main argument. So on the back, it says, this book is an attempt to show that the aristocratic regime and aristocratic morality is the origin of the idea of nature that at the point at which a historical aristocracy starts to decline, 
its defenders in abstracting and radicalizing the case for aristocracy in the face of its critics came upon the teaching of nature and the standard of nature in politics. It is precisely this teaching of nature, so corrosive to all convention and all morality, that is politically explosive and that explains the deep connection between philosophy, the criminal study of nature outside the city and outside the myths and pieties of the regime, and tyranny, the criminal and feral regime of rule outside and above all law and convention. Okay, so that is, I think, actually a very excellent summary. It's restated multiple times um, throughout the book with different variations on it. Um, but more or less, what we're looking at here is fundamentally the connection between philosophy and tyranny that the author's making. Not only that, but how philosophy in particular emerges uh, simultaneously or in tandem with tyranny, and that the preconditions for both, that is philosophy and tyranny, are similar, and they have to do with the discovery or the advent of the idea of nature. Um, Stephen, anything you wanted to add to that? Sure, that they're not just, the thesis is, they're not just coincident, but actually correlated in the sense that both are a kind of reaction to and resistance to emerging conditions. So this is gets into Nietzsche's thesis of decay, aristocratic decay, that um, Alamario covers in the fourth chapter of the book, and how these movements in the classical period are a response to that. So an actual resistance to the loss of um, effectual power on the part of aristocracies leads to a radicalization of these very ideas of nature. And that radicalization both underlies tyranny and philosophy. So it's not just that they happen to have this, that they have the same preconditions and happen to arise in the same place and time. It's that they're both sort of coordinated responses to something going on. Right, right. And we'll get into the sort of strategy uh, aspect of this uh, later on in the argument, but let's start out with sort of um, what's referred to in the book as the pre-philosophic mind. That is the state mm -hmm. of uh, at least Western or um, in the narrow sense, Greek um, society, civilization, whatever you want to call it, um, before the advent of, of, of philosophy and even before the advent of the idea of nature. One of the things to keep in mind is that we moderns take it for granted that uh, nature uh, is a concept that we we think about uh, without question, right? Um, all of natural science, that is, is based on the, the 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 emergence of this idea that there is this impersonal force in the world that is not metaphysical in nature, that is not rooted in um, a a religion or a kind of, of of magic, but is actually just has its basis in in what you would call nature. And um, obviously, uh, natural science itself came out of um, <clears throat> natural philosophy, and natural philosophy comes out of the very uh, the very origins of philosophy. So in the beginning, we are dealing with the emergence of the idea of nature, and you'll see as we progress through the argument in the book, why the idea of nature is one of the precursors, not the only precursor, but one of the precursors to uh, philosophy as such. And let's start with, the characterization of pre-philosophical or, or pre-natural um, societies. And 
in this, um, now some people have argued about the anthropology here, um, mm -hmm. but I think it, it's more or less pretty solid. I think some of the misconceptions about the anthropological uh, depictions are um, are based on <laughs> other understandings of um, uh, of things that the author or that people affiliated with the author uh, have said about pre pre. Um, uh, pre-modern Europe and, and and really ancient European society. But fundamentally what he says is that um, early pre-philosophical societies were ruled by a form of ancestor worship. Um, and that ancestor worship uh, seems to be uh, one kind of almost human universal in a lot of uh, tribal and primitive societies uh, where there is a constant reverence for um, the great ancestors of the past, the people who lived before. Um, and this involves as well a kind of um, uh, totalitarianism, as the author describes it, that permeates the entire society. And this goes by the name of nomos. Stephen, what is the concept of nomos as articulated in this work? So generically, nomos is simply a Greek word for law, convention, um, custom, um, but it's used more specifically in a philosophic sense in contrast with phusis or nature. So that's a theme that became very prominent in the pre-Socratics among the sophists. And then it gets taken up by Socrates and, and Plato as well, and, and they're working with it. And then of course, phusis, you know, nature becomes like a huge theme in like Aristotle. And part of what the work is doing is tracing back the history of these things. So, so nomos in contrast with nature um, is sort of one layer of it. But then what he's doing is going back even prior to that philosophic analysis and, and saying at the level of cultural conditions, where did this come from? Okay. And so then you're looking at a layer of um, agricultural societies predominantly, mm. and this is this is in Europe to include Greece. Prior to, um, let's say, the Indo-European expansion, so I mean, all all throughout history, you've had this pattern of pastoral peoples from the steppe coming in and often conquering, often forming a layer of aristocracy on top of a prior peasant-based or, or agriculturally-based society. So, so first we're looking at that earlier agricultural layer and how the kind of customs within it, as you say, are very um, ancestor-based um, based, um, from our perspective, might even look very superstitious. Um, a lot of ideas that would seem magical to us and that they themselves might describe in kind of shamanistic terms. Um, and uh, are often involve very tight social control. Okay, so on the part of elders, on the part of um, women, et cetera. So um, Almario will describe this as uh, an almost totalitarian democracy. So it's, it's, it's democracy in the sense, not that they're doing a lot of voting, but, but in the sense that there's a kind of enforced egalitarianism. Yeah. through these means of, of social control. And all of this is justified by the ancestral traditions. Um, this is the will of the gods. 
um, whatever gods happen to be worshipped, um, so on and so forth. And you know, to to kind of flesh out some of the pictures of this, you can go back to um, writers like Sir James Fraser, The Golden Bow, and he has a very um, synthetic um, kind of uh, account of what all this looks like. Yeah, so James Fraser is uh, referenced a lot for the more anthropological aspects of uh, describing these societies, but also he's used in this initial portion to start to describe um, the ways in which uh, distinctions uh, start to come about in, in the societies themselves. Now, it's not fully explanatory, um, but basically he says, you know, in these societies, they're, again, characterized as very communitarian, um, as um, not very martial loving, not very um, respectful of uh, individual differences or of anyone trying to be exceptional. Anyone who's exceptional under these conditions is sort of brought down to the lowest level. You know, how dare you say that you're better than all of the others or better than the people that lived before. But there is a figure that emerges, uh, which is sort of the village shaman right? Or the magician mm -hmm. or the priest. And what the village shaman does, the village shaman serves a kind of um, almost political function uh, where they are able to begin to distinguish themselves by um, performing various ceremonial rites um, in order to, you know, uh, appear as if they are having influence over nature, right? Appear as if they are communing with with gods or with the ancestors or some other ulterior entity in order to bring good fortune um, on the society. And this is the uh, initial emergence of sort of the the king type figure. Um, but it's missing some crucial um, qualities that uh, have to be sort of introduced from the outside. And so he makes the case that having this priest is not simply enough to get you to something like um, uh, something like absolute monarchs, right? Uh, where they're mm -hmm. um, they're ruling by virtue of belonging to God, uh, or of of their mandate from God, um, and that in other societies, for example, if you look at Oriental despotisms, um, they were not set up in the same way that the European. Uh, early aristocracies were set up. And this has to do with the invasion that we're going to get into now from the outside. And so there's a certain way in which nomos is almost like a hermetic seal. And the I, I would say the argument put forward by the author is that the conditions for uh, the emergence of the kind of aristocracy that we're going to get into, which is primarily a martial aristocracy, um, uh, he makes the case are basically implausible uh, endogenously, that they require an exogenous shock or an exogenous force, literal a literal invasion from from a um, from an outside group that establishes itself it establishes itself as an aristocratic class in order to come about. Um, so you hinted earlier at the uh, at the pastoralist agriculturalist divide. Um, let's get into that uh, because that sort of leads us down the pathway of nature and and, and breeding, which I know everyone is interested in. Um, mm -hmm. How do we get there? How do we get from this 
uh, agriculturalist, very um, uh, sedentary, almost passive, almost passive kind of society to this martial aristocracy with a concern for nature. So before we move on from shamanism, I just wanted to add one footnote about that. It, it, it's tempting to believe from our perspective that all of that was simply fake. Um, but I would point out that there's a whole body of lore involving drugs, um, often psychoactive drugs, um, heavily involved in in shamanism and the the kind of ceremonial rites that they would engage in would be often efficacious at least subjectively okay let, let's put it that way so so um it, it it was not simply a matter of people saying stuff <laughs> it was a matter of people actually having pr pretty extensive knowledge of how to do things with different plants kind of a side topic but um but an interesting one yeah, there, there's a siberian tradition of shamanism there's obviously oh, yeah. amazonian variants um oddly enough they all tended to use some kind of psychoactive plants yep. which were discovered in various um unknown ways yep and and i would again kind of a side note but but i would argue um extant throughout the mediterranean as well mm -hmm. yeah. um Eleusinian okay. mysteries. yeah no that's a that's a later sort of uh um a holdover kind of thing but um yeah so um pastoralism how, how does this come in why is it important well i mean you have this whole pattern as i was saying before of of very martial um peoples from the steppes coming in and taking over territory that they didn't previously control um one of the earliest of these that we know about is the so-called indo-europeans or aryans people sometimes call them um so roughly around 3000 bc they begin their expansion and it's just an incredible expansion out from i mean very roughly what we might consider southern russia or um um that that area of uh the ukraine as well um outward into western europe and then out to the east through persia down ultimately into northern india um and this is not something that like happened all at once it didn't happen over a century it happened like over you know a good you know millennium or more where it took place in many different phases but um so pastoral peoples have a fundamentally different way of like supporting themselves um, than agricultural people. They're not raising crops. They're engaging in a lot of animal breeding. And so they become very expert in animal breeding. Um, they make use of the horse for military, for tra tra transportation, but also military purposes. And they're extremely effective. And they often simply overrun the peoples that um, they attack and subdue. And you see in the genetic record throughout Western Europe, I mean, very clear evidence of this having taken place at particular times. Um, depending on where you look, there's different patterns of intermixture with the previous population. Uh, a common pattern, like you see this very clearly in Siberia, um, excuse me, Iberia, um, the Celts who came into Iberia, um, modern Spain and Portugal, mm -hmm. you'll see a complete 
um, replacement of the male population. So that there basically is no DNA in the modern Iberian population from the pre-Celtic invasion period. Um, there is survival from the female population. And you can tell this by looking at mitochondria versus other sources of DNA, um, but not the male, because basically all the males were killed. And, and so that's one pattern that, that you see. In other places, there's like different patterns of that mixture, but the, the fundamental phenomenon is it, it's not simply one of merging. It's not like, oh, we joined the populations and now we're one happy family. It's, it's that there's an aristocracy that's established, that the invaders and their immediate descendants form a military aristocracy um, which is ruling over the pre-existing population. There's often a, a clear ethnic distinction. Um, for a while, you know, different languages may um, persist. These, the languages of the conquered people may vanish. It all, it all depends on the, on the particular um, patterns. In India, this is, um, the, the segregation is so sharp that it like kind of evolves into the later caste system. Um, we don't typically see that in Western Europe, but there's still this clear distinction between the aristocracy and um, the previous population where they have different ways of life. And it's this agricultural versus pastoral pattern that I think becomes really important. Mm, right. So fundamentally what goes on uh, in the description of this is that the aristocratic warrior class, because it's coming out of a pastoralist society, it's very concerned with, um, first, first of all, uh, breeding and, and, and the natural differences between initially animals, but also human, the human as an animal, right? And uh, concepts of heredity, of lineage um, become very central because they are intimately familiar with how this affects the overall outcome in terms of the beauty, magnificence, performance of various specimens in terms of the livestock that they're raising. Um, and this gets ingrained. It, it, it also, it, what, one is, it's important to note, this is a warrior culture. And so their, their focus is on military victory, military prowess. And so that means that as well, the society is oriented towards producing uh, better, more powerful, uh, more formidable human beings. Um, who who are capable of of conquest, um, and there's a little bit of a um, I don't I wouldn't call it a digression, but more of an elaboration of kind of the more um, uh, fine components of aristocratic societies generally, and how and the parallels between them and uh, these uh, pastoralists, um, even even something as basic as the people from the hill or the mountain or whatever coming down to the valley. Um, and the aristocratic seen as 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 the higher and the commoners being seen as the lower um, as like a basic distinction that's initially literally elevation, um, but then gets abstracted more and more to become metaphorical in terms of the perception and also the hierarchy in the society. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting uh, parallels that are drawn. Um, there's also this uh, aspect, I think, 
and I don't, I'm not sure this is covered entirely um, to noted on it particularly well in the book, but it's something that comes to mind of um, this component of, uh, of zero sum, right? So if you're living in a pastoralist society, then every individual in that society has a particular plot of land. Uh, first of all, there's very little land oftentimes that is actually workable for either raising animals or crops, um, as opposed to a valley where there's lots of land and it's spread out if you're on a plain. Um, and secondly, again, there's this aspect of individual differences. There are going to, if you're raising goats, there are some goats that are going to be much larger, much stronger, are going to produce much more milk or whatever it may be than others. And this is a, um, an indisputable fact. And it's very, it, it has, uh, strong implications for your livelihood. And so in, in a way that, you know, let's just be honest, uh, agricultural crops do not. I mean, I know you can grow like a giant pumpkin or whatever, but for the most part, generally speaking, you're not going to get um, many multiples out of one crop versus another, maybe out of a particular large plot of land. But the individual differences between organisms are quite small, um, relatively speaking. Whereas the breeders, the pastoralists, have a very in-depth and long tradition of understanding the innate characteristics of the different animals, what animals should reproduce and which ones should not, uh, and how differentially that can affect outcomes. Um, so this begins basically the concept of, of nature. And we move now into a, an analysis of the aristocratic class's understanding of itself. So one thing to note is that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of course, uh, 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 historical assessment of what we perceive to be aristocratic classes or aristocratic values um, of obviously what what various commoners at, at various times, to the extent that they have any documented histories, um, perceived their their aristocrat, their ruling classes as. But the author in this section begins to pay in particular attention to Pindar's account, the poet, um, specifically because he believes, or he states rather, that Pindar uh, provides a great um, historical encapsulation of the aristocratic class in Greece, the Greek aristocracy, as it understood itself. And in particular, we are using Pindar to get to this concept, the uh, ultimate, ultimately abstraction and radicalization um, of nature, which will lead us into philosophy and tyranny. Um, so can you describe us a little bit how we get from all these notions of pastoralism and, and animal uh, breeding into the uh, ultimate abstraction and, and the constitution uh, of nature as a concept? Sure. So one easy way into this whole um, realm of discussion is the idea of noticing a lot of life is about noticing and the things you notice kind of depend on your situation in life and um, your own way of life so when you're a pastoralist the animal herds are your life they are they are what is standing between you and starvation so you have a great deal of incentive to notice 
what makes them thrive and what makes them not thrive. And you're doing um, very conscious breeding of these animals to try to um, get more of the ones that are for whatever you want, right? The qualities that you want. And this is where the whole notion of selective breeding comes in. And the difference between this and um, plants, plant agriculture, is that with animals, the obvious, uh, the, the, the breeding is very obvious. I mean, you can you can see them do it. You you can control which ones can can breed with which other ones. Um, certainly, in the case of horses, I mean, this is done very consciously, very very consciously controlling which of your horses you breed with others. And um, again, you're relying on these horses for your life. If if you are a warrior and you fight on horseback, how big and strong and fast your horse is can be the difference between you living and dying. So you have a huge incentive to carefully notice these things. And then once you've gone down that road and you know, you've know you noticed all kinds of important things about goats and sheep and horses, you know, it, it, it doesn't take this huge leap of imagination to see, oh, humans reproduce in much the same way, you know, and even if you don't have some elaborated concept of genetics or M Mendelian inheritance, you still know perfectly well about inheritance. I mean, you, you, you've been doing this for centuries and centuries. You, you, you know all about inherited traits. Mm. So um, the, the notion that you know, why is it that we who conquered these agricultural peoples look different from them? And, and why is it that if one of us marries one of them, you get a child that's somewhere in the middle? How, how does that work? Well, it, it works by inheritance the same way as with animals. Um, so that's the basic foundation of noticing the fact of inherited traits that you have a great deal of incentive to care about. Right. I mean, these things are important. This, this is not happenstance. This is not some little thing. Mm. Okay. So by the time we get to Pindar, we're, we're sort of at this later period. We're in the archaic period. Um, so it's after the Bronze Age, um, but before the classical period. I mean, Pindar is one of the canonical early poets. And what the book does this very, very nice job of is going through all of Pindar's references to nature, okay, to Fusus. And this is important because Pindar's early. He's one of our earliest sources for this. Okay, so in Homer, I think you have like exactly one reference to Fusus and then maybe one or two other cognate uses of the verb form that aren't quite references to Fusus. There's like one clear reference in the um, the uh, Circe episode in um, the Odyssey. But um, other than that, there's so there's an introduction of the concept in Homer very briefly, but there's no development of it. The first time in Greek literature we get this extended, you know, somewhat um, multiple uses of this word where you can look in context and see how it's used is with Pindar. And um, in his victory odes, of course, he's celebrating victors 
of the various games, the Isthmian games, the Olympian games. Um, in Greece, you had this, this whole series of Pan-Hellenic games. We, of course, remember the Olympics. They're the most famous one, but there was actually multiple of these games that were on an annual cycle. And athletes from all over Greece would come and compete. And not just what we think of as Greek, but the whole Greek world, which would, in, you know, included, you know, Southern Italy, um, east of uh, the west coast of, of Asia Minor, um, uh, Sicily, you know, the colonies in Sicily, etc. So all from all over the Greek world, they would come to compete. And um, there was a tremendous amount of prestige attached to winning these games. And it wasn't like professional athletes or specialized athletes like in our modern Olympics. It would be like actual like kings, you know, mm. you know, imagine this is sort of ludicrous, but imagine if Joe Biden went and actually competed in the Olympics. Well, you would actually get things like that, where the, the actual tyrant of Syracuse would come and and compete in, in one of the games and, and maybe win. And um Pindar's specialty was composing these odes for the victors in which he celebrated um, their qualities, but it wasn't just a straightforward, oh, this guy's great. It was this very sort of um, rich um, reference to mythology where various mythological events and figures would be used in comparison with the victor. Um, in fact, there are Greek myths, details of which we only know because of Pindar, because they were referenced in one of his odes. Um, but not just the victor, also the victor's ancestors. So very often the victor's father or grandfather will be mentioned. And if they had won similar victories, that would be brought out. And um, the reason that's relevant is because the notion of nature here is of inherited nature. It's like nature doesn't just come from nowhere and it doesn't come from training. It comes from what one is in inherited. And of course, it still needs to be trained. You're not going to win an Olympic game without training. Um, but that training is only possible because you have the nature on the basis of which to hone the skills and excellences and virtues that allow you to succeed in this kind of competition. Mm. Yeah. So an important point here uh, that the author emphasizes is that, uh, as you said, uh, Pindar does this great job of laying out sort of all the multifaceted ways to talk about Fusus. Um, but in particular, there's an emphasis on outstanding physicality and a connotation as well of intensity. So like when I talk about your nature today, if I refer to, you know, oh, it's in Steven's nature, usually people have in mind um, uh, some sort of pattern of behavior or, uh, or even personality. Um, they're not necessarily thinking of your like your extant physicality, right? Uh, you as a physical specimen. Um, but one point that's made over and over again is that they're explicitly talking about nature in terms of your physical constitution, um, as well as those other traits. Those other traits are also not negligible. Um, 
and we'll get into some of the other traits um, that are regarded uh, highly um, in this in this culture, even even this early on. Um, but there's an emphasis as well on physicality, and so that's important to note because we'll come back to that later. Um, Absolutely. So in English, I'll just add we mm -hmm. have the word physique, which right. comes through the French, Post but it comes from physis. So um, you know, mm -hmm. people and talk about as well both. has the same root. Same root, right? So yes, absolutely. It is physical. Fusus is physical, yes. Um, so it, it, it's psychophysical, you could say. From it, 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 It's both, it manifests in the body as visible, but it also manifests in behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the way someone interacts, the way they compete, what they are able to do, their capacities, um, the will with which they pursue, uh, 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 an athletic competition or struggle um, is all part of FUSIS. Right. And another another point to make here uh, before we move further into the discussion is that this is beginning already to be contrasted with the uh, the nomos or the traditional or ancestral um, society that is ruled by custom or convention that was described earlier. And so there's already setting up this tension between uh, what nature provides or the rule of nature and what is what is customary, what is merely conventional. And this is a tension that is going to get elaborated and expanded upon and abstracted further and further as we move through the argument, but it's something to just keep in mind. Um, any point on that? Um, I, I would just add that I think one reason that that contrast becomes accentuated is the rise of the polis, the, the city. Mm -hmm. That when you live in a city, you've already taken a step away from sort of pastoral life on the land. And a city necessarily requires governance according to rules, according to some notion of law, you, you kind of can't not have that. But as a result, that whole body of um, law and convention can kind of crowd out the, a lot of the elements, physical and psychological of the prior way of life. So I think mm -hmm. that, uh, that rising tension is, is very understandable. Right. And in, in our in our modern terminology, this would be seen as like the nature versus nurture debate. Um, concerns over how much of it, how much of what you are or what you do is inborn um, versus merely uh, taught. Um, but also way of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some ways of life that are going to lean upon and um, enhance natural capacities. And there are other ways of life whose tendency is to mask or allow natural capacities to atrophy. Mm. So I, I think there's also, it's, it's not just nurture versus nature in the way that a biologist might try to measure the um, heritability of some trait. It's, it's also that you get different ways of life that, that um, weight things differently. Right. Um, and with the emergence of the city, uh, 
and its contrast to nature or, or, or the contrast of city life versus life outside the city. You have this notion of training for war, aristocratic training, aristocratic breeding as a kind of uh, rewilding. And I'm mm -hmm. unsure exactly how to, how to make this transition because we're going to move in a moment into the discussion of Callicles in the Gorgias. Mm -hmm. um, but before we do that, there's two very important words that we have to get out uh, into the vocabulary in, in order to proceed into the discussion which is the constitution of these heroes that Pindar is composing these odes to. Uh, they have certain qualities that are, again, beyond physical. There's phronesis, which is, again, their, their physical attributes, their physical qualities. Uh, but there's also Andrea. And Andrea, okay. um, I'm sorry, I'm mixing, I'm mixing up thesis and phronesis. Phronesis <laughs> is a kind of um, uh, political calculation or political uh, acumen. Andrea is manliness. The combination of these two, when they're married together in one individual, this produces erita, that is excellence. Um, mm -hmm. And this is an important uh, trait for uh, both the, these heroes, uh, as well as uh, the archetype of the tyrant, which we're going to get into in the next discussion about Callicles. Tyrant is said in this uh, passage to combine Andrea, that is uh, manliness or, or sometimes interpreted as courage, also with phronesis. Um, mm -hmm. Phronesis being sort of a way of maneuvering in society, a way of uh, political calculation, but also of leading other men. Um, and so there's your individual capacity for, for bravery, for courage for strength, your personal prowess, but then there's also your prowess with regard to um, the hierarchy of men and the city more generally, your sort of street smarts, um, as some people refer them to. And these are important attributes to have, and they are, again, part of this aristocratic martial virtue. This aristocratic um, martial society uh, isn't merely looking for uh, some strong brute who's going to be totally ineffectual. Um, you also, you do need to have the physical component. The physicality is essential and uh, non-negotiable, but you also need to have these other aspects that are more psychological or spiritual in nature, which have to do with your own personal courage, your own willingness to lead other men into battle, and also your cunning, your ability to protect yourself and others from being destroyed. Because again, it's important to keep in mind that in all societies, this aristocratic class is outnumbered. They're outnumbered by, um, by the masses, by the lower classes that they're ruling. They have threats from, uh, from without as well as from within. There is always a chance that one aristocrat decides to defect and try to rule over all the others. And so these are sort of the valuable traits that we have. And... Um, that's important to keep in mind as well, because the tyrant, uh, sort of comes out both, uh, as a, as a natural consequence of, uh, this program of breeding that we're just, that we're laying out, but also, uh, somewhat accidentally because of certain political conditions that we'll get to towards the end of the argument. Mm -hmm. All right. Right. So phronesis is one of those 
hard words to translate. Um, it, it's sometimes translated practical wisdom, but but as you emphasize, it's it's wisdom with a particular social aspect. So how to work with men. So these two virtues, Andrea and um, Phronesis, they they're very much Homeric. They go right back to the Iliad and the Odyssey, where they're very much put um, front and center. Um, Odysseus, in particular, is sort of praised very heavily for for his phronesis, for his ability to navigate, for his ability to coordinate, um, as well as for his battlefield prowess. So, like. And people forget this. People forget this that that um, they they remember the Odyssey and and all the clever tricks and whatnot, but they forget that in the Iliad, he was one of the leading warriors on the battlefield as well. I mean, mm. it, it, the, the Iliad doesn't center on him like it centers on Achilles, but nonetheless, um, he was no slouch in the physicality department. Um, so I think you're absolutely right to point to the the combination of these things, of these two things being, you know, sort of the, the peak of excellence or, or virtue and um, how that then carries down into the later period. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I think we've done a good job of sort of laying out um, the sort of uh, pre-classical pre conditions and sort of state of both this aristocracy as well as how it contrasts um, with the previous uh, societies. So let's get into now um, the discussion of the gorgeous, and in particular, this character Callicles and his mm -hmm. argument with, with Socrates. So Plato's dialogue, the gorgeous, um, is brought up <clears throat> um, in order to sort of elucidate this or begin to elucidate this connection between tyranny and and philosophy um and the character of Callicles is uh said to be um or, or, or there, there there's an interpretation of this argument between socrates and, and Callicles that the author presents that sort of defies the uh historical understanding of uh, of, of Platonic political philosophy. And really what this chapter mm -hmm. is about is this uh, reinterpretation or, or revisioning of um, Plato's true uh, intent, dare I say, um, mm -hmm. with regard to this, uh, this dialogue. Um, so there's this character, uh, Callicles, who's very central. He's said to be Socrates' uh, strongest interlocutor, uh, the secret hero of the gorgeous, um, and and also happens to be the last argument that Socrates has. Um, and in this discussion between Socrates and Calicles, we're not going to go through the entire dialogue or, or, or quote from it directly, but we will uh, go over the way in which it relates to the argument uh, at hand. Um, Calicles is basically making the, the, the case for more or less might is right um, in, in the face of, of Socrates in a very... Um, uh, unsophisticated fashion, uh, relatively speaking. Um, but basically, you know, um, Callicles is, is beginning to make the case, uh, is making the case to Socrates 
essentially for um, for uh, tyranny. And the reason why is because he's he's saying that the uh, th there's enslavement of the superior by the, by the many, and this has to do with the corruption of manliness that's brought on by this philosophical posturing that that Socrates is doing. So you want to get begin to get a little bit into this uh, debate that Calcles and Socrates are having in this dis dialogue. Yeah, I mean this is fascinating in, in a in a book that is not lacking controversial aspects. Um, Costin's reading of the Callicles portion of the Gorgias um, may be one of the more controversial, at least among um, folks who read Plato. Let's put it that way. Um, so Callicles is presented as a senior student of Gorgias. Gorgias is a sophist and a very famous teacher of rhetoric. Um, he is an actual person, an actual historical figure. We, we know this from many other sources, um, and we have some of his extant writings. So Gorgias is totally real, um, e even if the dialogue is, you know, somewhat fictionalized in, in, in ways that are hard to determine, as with many Platonic dialogues. Um, the character of Callicles, we don't know if he's actually real or if Plato just totally fictionally made him up. Um, I don't think it matters a ton, but... Um, He's basically presenting a radicalized version of a position of a, a pre-Socratic sophist position in political philosophy. And he's kind of presenting it um, full strength, you know, head on, no dilution. Here is um, what I believe. And he's, he's pressing um, Socrates on this. And the position is basically, it has many different descriptions, but one description is of natural right, that it is natural that the strong and the best should rule, that those who are you know, most competent, where, where competence can be reckoned in, in multiple dimensions, um, rule by right. And, you know, I think many people, you know, there, there's a whole tradition of reading this and, and kind of like clutching your pearls and saying, oh, isn't this horrible? Isn't this terrible? But, you know, you hear many people today um, will say things that are not too like that, not too unlike this when it comes to say, you know, the science, you know, and, and we should be following the experts because they know. And, um, you know, you, you, you could view that as, you know, ironically, a kind of transferred Callicles position to this uh, professionalized scientific elite, um, so-called or claimed elite. So, so actually, you know, there are many very good progressives today who say things that I would argue are um, at least structurally analogous to Callicles's own position. So maybe they should um, unclutch their pearls a little bit. But um, yeah, so Callicles puts forward his arguments and Socrates responds. And the interesting angle that Costin really zooms in on is the adequacy or lack thereof of Socrates' responses. Hmm. 
Right. So, um, yeah, so, so, so Socrates, one of the things that he does that's missing from Callicles' conception uh, here is that Callicles is sort of overly focused on uh, components of speech, right? Again, he's trained as a sophist, and he's very focused on the rhetorical aspect of this, right? Making this rhetorical claim. And Socrates, mm -hmm. weirdly, even though he's supposed to be uh, against Callicles, he's supposed to be the anti-Callicletian element here, um, basically uh, bolsters Callicles' argument in this dialogue by saying, well, actually, Callicles, you know, you're missing a key component here, which is um, it's not enough to simply uh, have rhetoric uh, to have speech on your side. Uh, you also need to have force. And the speech that's not backed by force uh, is insufficient. And this is one of the things that becomes sort of central to the uh, unwinding of the uh, of Plato's intention, according to Costin here, um, mm -hmm. which is that, uh, you know, uh, there's, again, they're, they're, they're living in the city. They're not having an abstract discussion that is independent of the polis. They're keeping the polis in mind as a, as a permanent reality of their situation. Um, and Socrates says, well, you know, Calicles, the problem with your, uh, and, and Calicles is a young, ambitious man, uh, supposing he exists, whether he existed or not, that's what this figure mm -hmm. is trying to do. Um, that, that is pursuing a political career. And the problem with this is, of course, that in a democratic regime, the pursuit of a political career necessarily involves co-option or assimilation into the, the, the majority rule. Um, and how you avoid this fate is, uh, is part of the problem, right? How do you avoid this corruption, this corruption of manliness that Callicles is concerned about? And Socrates says, well, you're missing this aspect of force um, and you're not including it properly. Um, and also you need to, uh, so, so, so you need to have real power. It is not simply enough to have the rhetoric. You need to have real power in order to change the ways of the city. And how do you do that? Well, um, the case is made that, um, that philosophers, because if they, if they make their, um, if they make their intentions too clear to the demos, to the many, uh, they, they will either just not succeed or they may even get taken out altogether. And so what they must do instead is uh, play uh, at the moral virtues that uh, the many have. Remember, we have this uh, we have this ancient distinction between nature and convention. The, mm -hmm. the philosophers, as well as the tyrants, are concerned with the way of nature, which is in tension with the way of convention. And, mm -hmm. and the argument is made here that in order to seize power, which is the only way that you can actually change the, uh, the mores of the city, let's say, uh, that philosophers need to make their character public um, and they need to, uh, in a sense, play at moral virtue. Yes, which is a, so I'm, I'm not sure how much you want to step through the, the argument, but um, uh, the, the, the conventional, so, so kind of the, the flip that goes on here is 
the conventional reading is that Socrates refutes Callicles, um, eventually like shames him um, right. by oh, compare. If I may just interject. Okay. Shame is a crucial component here because mm -hmm. shame is what keeps the, let's say, more excellent individuals in the society in line. Mm -hmm. Shame becomes absolutely central in keeping down yes. the higher types of all societies. Okay, proceed. Yes. And then Callicles at some point ceases to respond, ceases to participate. And, um, you know, Plato goes on to give one of his, excuse me, Socrates goes on to give one of his um, myths about reward and punishment. And um, the, the whole thing does not really have an, an adequate resolution. And one way of reading that, the way proposed, is that in fact, um, rather than holding the position that, well, clearly Socrates is right and Callicles is wrong, which is, would be, be sort of a conventional reading, that in fact, what's being indicated through um, the dialogue and the, the kind of almost deliberate inadequacy of Socrates's response is quite the reverse. That, that Plato has a, that, well, two things. One, that Socrates's position, true position, and Callicles's true position are not nearly as far apart as it might seem. And two, that Plato himself is much more sympathetic to Callicles' position than is being let on. Mm, right. So <clears throat> it's important to remember that um, rule by nature entails a kind of licentiousness, right? A, a kind of uh, unabashed want for gain or one's own advantage. And Socrates says that, you know, the, the, the problem with this is that you risk not only dissolution of yourself, you know, the, the mob might just come kill you. Uh, they might kill all the philosophers in the city because they're, you know, encouraging licentiousness. They're encouraging tyrants. Um, but also you risk the corruption of the city itself. And so the actual basis on which you have to rule, the substrate on which you, which there is something to be ruled, right, is, is put in danger if the uh, naked nature of want for gain or, or licentiousness or the assertion of one's eros, as it's called, um is uh is is spoken about and and put out into the open right and this is another part of of the concealment both of uh uh of the individual uh actor in in this scenario which would be the 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 would be tyrant remember every greek was a secret tyrant in his heart it, it's quoted a few mm -hmm. times um but also uh, in terms of what Plato is doing. So another important claim here is that the Platonic project of political philosophy as such, we won't get into the descriptions of political philosophy. There's some interesting discussion about that, um, has as its primary motive, the preservation of the conditions for philosophy or the preservation of philosophy. And so part of what Plato is doing, it's asserted, is creating a uh, a mask for philosophers to wear, for philosophy itself to wear, in order for its own preservation, 
the preservation of itself and the preservation of the city. And those two things are linked. Like the, the, the city has to be preserved in a certain manner in order for philosophy also to be preserved, right? Mm. That, that um, certain kinds of disorder in the city would necessarily rebound to the destruction of, of philosophy. So, so yes. Um, and then, you know, you can get into all kinds of, there's many, many layers here. Like you, you can get into, well, is that order, is that kind of order that helps preserve the city and philosophy itself also good for the city? Mm -hmm. You know, and and right, right. So, so another work that's referenced um, uh, in in terms of fleshing out the the the, re the revision of Platonic uh, political philosophy is Hippias Major, which I'm not so familiar with personally, um, but it's another crucial piece for this. Um, because this is where you get this rhetoric of the philosopher um, in which the philosopher establishes himself as not the corrupter of the city. Remember, Socrates is put, put to death for uh, teaching would-be tyrants, right? For being the instructor of the tyrants who tried to put down the democracy, among other things. Um, corrupting the youth, belief in false gods, etc. Um, but where the philosopher repositions himself in a very sly move as the gatekeeper of virtue right as the uh as the paragon of virtue as the moralistic teacher of of the society and this is how plato in costin's view uh creates a kind of nature preserve a a freedom from the constraints of the city for the philosopher by branding the philosopher as actually a uh, a, an, a spiritual, almost quasi-religious figure, which then actually becomes our sort of common conventional interpretation of the history of uh, of philosophy, which is that the philosophers are here to teach us the way of the good life, to to, to kind of give us moral instruction or guidance and so forth. And Kostin is making the, the quite radical claim that all of that is actually a um an artifice a construction by plato in order to preserve philosophy from destruction right right and and so the the, the latter is is i guess we'll get to it in in chapter four but the latter is nietzsche's interpretation as well um so the one way of putting the claim would be that Plato's whole valorization of Socrates, his whole project of building up this body of literature, this body of um, almost poetry, you could say, um, around Socrates and, and holding him out to be this, you know, great witness, this great sacrificial figure for the truth and the, and, and the um, quest for the truth is itself part of this effort to um, communicate in, in a way that allows nature to be preserved for the philosophers. Hmm. And um, I guess I guess we should move on to Nietzsche. There's a way in which this uh, this strategy 
uh, ultimately backfires or at least becomes um, outdated, you might say, which has to do with um, the argument that Nietzsche makes. Nietzsche um, is concerned as Plato was with the destruction of philosophy and views it as uh, you know imminently um, in danger. And ironically enough, and I think this is a little bit harder to parse, and so I want to be careful how we step here. Um, it said that the way that that the reason Plato constructed this whole world for us was as an emergency measure, right, to preserve the conditions of philosophy. But that then, by the time Nietzsche comes around, um, millennia later, philosophy is again in danger of permanently being stamped out from the world. Um, and so Nietzsche comes up with an emergency measure of his own, which is sort of to undo <laughs> all of Plato's um, all of Plato's constructions. But there's an important point here to make, which is that um, that it's not simply Plato himself who made the error. There was also unforeseen circumstances which have to do with the introduction of Christianity. So how does the introduction of Christianity change this dynamic that Plato set up for us? So I think there's two levels here. Um, and you're right to point out um, that the failure Nietzsche diagnoses took place far, far earlier than Nietzsche himself. I mean, he traces it back to antiquity. Okay, so you, you really have a twofold failure. One is sort of endogenous and one is exogenous. The endogenous failure is, is simply that, one way to put it is um, any strategy that relies upon a message other than the truths that it's actually based on runs a strong risk of your successors losing the joke and taking the um, exoteric message as the true one. And so right. the thing simply corrupts into its exoteric message. And that, that's kind of an endogenous risk. And I think that's a, you know, a basic fact about the um, evolution of institutions that, um, you know, perhaps Plato could or should have foreseen, but perhaps didn't. Um, the other element is the, the one you mentioned, is the introduction of Christianity. And of course, Christianity takes over um, to a large extent um, Platonism as a kind of favored philosophy, but then proceeds to integrate it into um, Christian doctrine. And this is a very complex process. It's not like this happened in one year or even one century. I mean, this, this, there's a whole development of Neoplatonism in late antiquity, which is itself not Christian, but it's, it's typically the, these later Neoplatonic forms that get taken over. And initially within Christianity, there's a lot of conflict about the role of philosophy and whether it should be used and whether it can be used. But as time goes on, and that, that, that's a complex story unto itself. But as time goes on, um, you get figures like Augustine and others who put a very great deal of effort into further integrating it. And um, so 
some of the, let's say, tenets or tendencies or conclusions or attitudes of Platonic philosophy um, become absorbed into and used by Christian theology. But this, of course, then puts a, an extremely different um, um, face on things. You know, Nietzsche referred to Christianity itself as Platonism for the masses. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's many aspects of that that we could delve into, the otherworldly focus versus of thisworldly focus, mm. um, et cetera. But, but suffice it to say that the end result is something very different from um, what Plato would have been envisioning or intending on Nietzsche's interpretation. Correct. Right. So Nietzsche helps us uh, diagnose sort of where things went wrong in that twofold way that you described, as well as draw out this identity. And I mean identity in like a very strong sense. I mean, literally, like you can almost put an equal sign <laughs> between tyranny and philosophy. Um, this is the case that Costin is making. And that's partly why this book is so, um, I think, shocking, I would say, to many. Um, and why, you know, it might have, a, I mean, we'll see, it's, it's, it's to, be, to be seen, but it may have some really strong reverberations in the world of political philosophy, um, given that it's sort, of, uh, it, it's sort of out. I mean, it's been out since 2015, but it's gotten so popular now that I think the argument is kind of unavoidable. Um, that being said, there's a kind of um, Nietzschean return to aristocratic radicalism, a radicalization of the aristocratic standard, which Nietzsche believes has been lost uh, through this process of, of uh, centuries-long obfuscation. As you said, if you have an esoteric and an exoteric message, the danger is always that the exoteric message gets taken uh, literally. And uh, the esoteric message gets totally forgotten. And so Nietzsche is trying to do a kind of recovery or resurrection um, of the, uh, the historical aristocracy um, and, also, um, and uh, also to figure out the preconditions, the prerequisites, again, for tyranny and philosophy. Nietzsche's chief concern it said, is the preservation of philosophy. Um, and so he's doing this kind of uh, resurrection, uh, so to speak. And uh, I'm trying to figure out a good place to go into the Nietzschean argument. Um, well, one aspect is simply the reversal of the basic move of concealment that he mm. sees um, platonic political philosophy um, based on. That rather than um, presenting a outward facing um, shell of namas to simply return to the basis upon nature directly which is sort of um you know the the move that plato felt he could not make in order to um that wasn't available if he was going to preserve philosophy itself 
Mm. Um, you know, Socrates had been killed and, and they were perfectly happy to kill more people. <laughs> um, so, and Nietzsche is saying, okay, that was understandable in context, but it didn't work. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, reasons, but it, it didn't work. And therefore, we're now in a position where um, an even more radical strategy is needed of returning directly to this, as you said, aristocratic radicalism mm. of appealing to and centering on nature and um, and this this is complicated, of course, because it's not as if Nietzsche doesn't have rhetorical strategies of his own. And it's not as if he is always um, speaking in the most plain of of and, and and you know the most plain of manners calculated to be easily understood. But, the, the kind of difference is that, you know, to the extent that there is any esotericism of, of Nietzsche, it's 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 not a matter of I say one thing here and a different thing here. Mm. It's simply a matter of I am going to speak in certain ways to certain audiences, knowing that I will only be understood by those audiences and that many will read my writing perhaps most will read my writing and not understand. And that's just fine. Mm. That, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, those who can hear will hear and so be it. Yes. There's an, another component again has to do with, so, so it's important to remember that Kostin is almost at all times in this book, making a, uh, an argument on two levels. One is the actual central argument of the book itself, which has to do with, again, the emergence of tyranny and philosophy out of the idea of nature and all that, all that entire logical flow implies. But the also, uh, uh, the second level in which he's arguing is with the field of political philosophy itself and the history of political philosophy itself. And an important thing to note, just as you said, with regards to Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's sort of esoteric versus esoteric um, dynamic is that there's a kind of willful misunderstanding that's uh, also performed with regard to Nietzsche. Nietzsche makes a lot of very bold, very um, uh, very inflammatory statements that are quite provocative. They are provocative even in his time. They're provocative even now. I mean, <laughs> you know, for sure. Uh, I re I remember, you know, there were uh, there were parts <clears throat> there were parts of Nietzsche that we were not supposed to read in school because uh, they were too dangerous for us to uh, to get our hands on. Um, and so uh, the the part of willful misunderstanding here, though, has to do with the charge that Costin makes. Um, that uh, there were actually a lot of academics in political philosophy or in other various fields that are looking at Nietzsche who chose to interpret his words as merely metaphorical, right? Um, in particular, his um, his uh, articulation of the, the uh, intractability of human hierarchy, of differences between human beings, uh, as well as... Um, this focus on cruelty or what's often uh, 
used in place of a similar concept, this pathos of distance, right? This sort of uh, rejection of compassion as a primary value, the necessity of inclusion or of exclusion rather, <laughs> um, which you're almost not allowed to say, exclusion as a virtue in itself. All of these things are radical uh, Nietzschean ideas that are repeated over and over again in his oeuvre, but which are often taken by contemporary academics to be merely metaphorical or merely um, provocations for the sake of getting at, you know, ulterior arguments. And one of the claims that uh, Kostin is making is that, no, actually, Nietzsche means what he says when he says these things, and we have no reason not to take him seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the reception of Nietzsche in English um, after the Second World War, that there was a, um, on the one hand, a strong effort to um, reject him as associated with the German side of the war, and on the other hand, a, a, a following effort to recuperate him, to say, no, 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 we don't want to consign Nietzsche to the waste bin. Actually, we can't, because he's simply been too influential, um, too prominent. There, there's too much literature, too much poetry, too much music inspired by him. Mm -hmm. um, we're not willing to simply excise and throw away Nietzsche. Therefore, we have to create our own Nietzsche. We have to create a somewhat sanitized Nietzsche in which we either um, simply pass over certain things, um, de-emphasize certain things, treat certain things as merely rhetorical or metaphorical, and um, we will carefully, you know, emphasize other themes. And you know, you see this new Nietzsche, this sort of um, neo-westernized Nietzsche, you might say. Um, kind of absorbed into the larger movement of postmodernism. Mm. Um, so a great deal of postmodern authors um, in academia will freely draw on Nietzsche, but it's always this very selective Nietzsche. Yeah, they're interested in like his criticisms of Christianity, right? Um, and it's, a, it's, it's always very, uh, sometimes very superficial. Um, you know, well, they're even, interested in his rejection even, of Christianity, not necessarily yeah, yeah. his actual criticism. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because if you get to the criticism, it, it points very quickly to something else. Yeah, like you'll get atheists bringing up the God is dead quote, and it's just like, uh, hey, man, <laughs> I'm not sure you're reading that correctly. Um, uh, okay, so I think we've treated the meta discussion of Nietzsche pretty well. I'd like to return now to the core argument. Um, which has to do with sort of Nietzsche's conclusions, right? So Nietzsche's trying to figure out um, how do I save philosophy again? And uh, what are the preconditions, the necessary requirements uh, for the emergency of philosophy to begin with? Um, and one of the conclusions that um, is discussed in this book is the aristocratic physical culture as a precondition for philosophic life. And this has to do with sort of an, an external and an internal um, cruelty, I would say. Um, we talked earlier about Nietzsche's concern for pathos of distance, for, uh, for hierarchies uh, among human types. But the emphasis in an aristocratic military culture 
is not only among not only hierarchies between individuals, but also hierarchy within the individual, right? You yourself have competing uh, and often uh, oppositional drives, wants, needs, desires, so forth. And in the uh, excellent individual, those drives are put into a hierarchy, right? And that means subsuming the weaker ones, the weaker parts of yourself, literally of your soul, to the stronger drives, right? The, 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 higher, the higher order goals. Um, and one weird thing that's uh, that sort of brought up, which I, I thought was, was kind of funny and was really not expecting to see, um, was the discussion of uh, not only, you know, uh, do you need to have a, a, a strong physical body, but also uh, of tanned skin. And so in this passage about Nietzsche's conclusion of aristocratic physical culture, we have a return to the physicality that we were discussing way at the beginning of this, uh, which has to do with the training of philosophers and would-be tyrants. And that this training is very literal in terms of physical training and exposure to the elements. Um, and that this training is integral to not only just actual preparation for war, but also to training the mind. And in fact, there's even a passage um, that's brought up where um, uh, where you know a warrior is 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 praised uh, as a philosopher as more of a philosopher than the learned man because the learned man merely has propositional knowledge edu education they've merely learned the ways of the you know of the nomos um but the uh the, the physical man the virile man uh actually has entrained in his body and constituted in his body the principles of the aristocratic ethos um, so how does Nietzsche bring us back to this, this connection to physical culture? So it might seem odd to a modern, especially a modern academic, to say that philosophy um, has its roots in this sort of physical culture. It may, it may seem like a stretch, but... I don't think it would have been a stretch at all to the Greeks themselves. I don't think they would have even um, had a sense of cognitive dissonance that needed to be explained away. I think this would have been extremely familiar to Socrates or Plato. Um, you know, Socrates was a hoplite uh, huh. in in the and a and a very successful. Hoplite. And yeah, helped put down the tyranny <laughs> for that matter. Well, that was later. But but um but you know in, in the symposium mm. there is the a passage where Alcibiades is recounting how Socrates saved his life in battle. And um you know his praise for Socrates as a warrior. Um, who who came in and and you know saved him from certain death um, during a particular episode of combat? You know, and Alcibiades himself is no slouch as mm -hmm. a as a military leader and and general. This was sort of his forte. Um, so when Alcibiades says that about Socrates, and he's not like trying to butter up Socrates, he's not like you know 
trying to flatter him or something. In fact, he's sort of bitter towards Socrates. Um, but, you know, he says, you know, hey, this is how it was. This is what happened. Um, so so I, 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 I don't think that the intuition here about, you, we mentioned earlier Andrea and Phronesis as sort of these core virtues. And if on a platonic account, you view um, cultivation of the virtues as sort of integral to philosophy. And, and you know, you see this in, in Aristotle as well, in the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, for example. Um, you know, that totally includes, is encompassing of physicality. I mean, uh, Aristotle spends a great deal of time on Andre Andrea in the Ethics. And, mm. and it is not just courage in some generic sense, it is courage in battle. And there's even discussion of whether this can really be known, whether this can really be tested outside of battle, or if it is only in battle that this can really be um, grasped and known and, and seen. Um, so, so integral is, is this idea of physical combat to these core constitutive virtues. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, you, what, what do you think the virtues are, I guess, is, is one way of putting it. What do you think human excellence is? What do you think it looks like? What do you think are its preconditions? What do you think um, one can do to strengthen or build towards one's own excellence in this regard? You know, so, if someone, you know, gets up at 5 a.m. and lift weights until failure, un until their muscles ache, and does this on a regular basis, um, you know, I, I don't think the determination and the willingness uh, to work on oneself in that manner is unrelated to how one shapes oneself through study. You know, whether it be learning Greek, reading Plato, or or anything else. Hmm. Another component of this is again uh, preparation for war, which I think a lot of us moderns are um, have a difficult time relating to because almost none of us, uh, at least in the, the developed world, uh, are face the prospect of war <laughs> coming to our door anytime soon. Um, but it was omnipresent and a component of this <clears throat> that um, uh, is discussed in this last last chapter, really. I mean, there's a part after this, which we'll get into briefly, but this is really the last substantive trap chapter uh, has to do with the um, the type of regime that emerges as a result of this omnipresent danger. And is, it is this omnipresent danger that sort of puts the evolutionary pressure on, I would say, um, to cultivate this excellencies, uh, both in oneself as an individual, as well in the culture more broadly. Um, and so it's important to remember that there has to be a danger somewhere um, in order to really kick into high gear the parts of you uh, and the parts of a culture that uh, would be necessary in order to raise um, in order to raise up this uh, aristocratic militarist uh, culture. 
Um, and the reason I bring this up is because we're going to get in sort of the closing sections of the core argument, which have to do um, with the unleashing of aristocratic power from moral constraints. So remember, there's a kind of um, moral deference that is part of the platonic project of political philosophy. And Nietzsche is, 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 is trying to unshackle us from that. But there's an important sequential element to this, which is that there actually has to be a right time to do so. It's not simply enough to decide one day we're going to start um, you know, doing away with all these moral pretensions. Um, there is a, uh, a, a lifespan of, of regimes, and there is a right time for the right kind of uh, philosophical disruption, I would say. And in particular, what I'm getting at is this notion of the uh, of an aristocracy's decline or of a regime's moment of political weakness, right? And so Nietzsche is writing at a time where he sees the European aristocracy, the European elite project, as beginning to fall apart. Um, maybe it's already fallen apart by the time he's writing, but it's at least weak. And the political situation is also weak. And the birth of philosophy and the birth of tyranny <clears throat> comes out of this, uh, really, I would say, opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about the window um, with which uh, the narrow window in which to reestablish uh, traditional, uh, and I mean that not in the sense of nomos, but the uh, traditional aristocratic virtue. So a fundamental question always is, what time is it? And I don't think Nietzsche believed that his time was the moment um, for the rise of some new aristocracy. I mean, I think everything you said about the decay of the existing European elites, I think that's exactly correct. I think that is what Nietzsche saw, and I think he was correct to see that. Um, but he also talks about how it might be well into the future before some something new can really arise. It might not be for a century. It might not be, you know, for a, a very great deal of time. And that's simply because the present conditions um, may not be there. And I think that's right. I, I think technology has a lot to do with this. Um, so Costin um, doesn't get into technology much in, in this book, but there is a whole uh, discussion to be had about the relation of technology to these things and, and how it transforms um, live situations to make possible um, certain things or not in terms of the, the ways of life that are supported. Um, it, it could well be that our present regimes, mm. however weak and decayed they are, still have enough hegemony to prevent um, the rise of something that would um, worthily replace them anytime soon. Um, and I, this is not me trying to black pill everyone or anything <laughs> or white pill. I mean, depending on 
where you're coming from. Um, but but it's simply an observation that uh, regimes can be very sort of uh, decayed and dysfunctional in many ways, and yet still have quite a strong grip for quite a long time. You know, yeah. there's I, a famous line about there being a great deal of ruin in a nation. And um, it may be that uh, the West has a great deal of ruin in it. Right. So uh, it behooves us to know what time it is. I will say that there is a nice little Easter egg in the introduction about why this thesis came out when it did. You know, remember, this was originally published in 2015, which is quite some time ago. Um, and even then, he makes a note. It's literally one line about mm -hmm. the advancements in genetic technology. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I just spoke with Steve Sue, who runs mm -hmm. Prediction Genomics, <laughs> um, about this exact thing, family planning, embryonic screening, um, various genetic technologies that are coming out. Um, and it's important to note, I'm not going to dwell too much on this point because it's a little bit odd and I think a little bit difficult for a lot of people to uh, grapple with. But if you're interested, read the book um, that Costin makes about where the, uh, the leader, so to speak, uh, or really the tyrant uh, might come from, right? Uh, because he says, you know, Nietzsche's concerned with the preservation of philosophy, but the preservation of philosophy for its own sake is not what he wants. What he's really after is the preservation of philosophy for the arrival of genius, right? For the preservation of high culture and for the production of genius. He wants mm -hmm. the genius. The genius, again, is the man with Andrea and Phronesis. Um, But Kostin goes into a little bit of a discussion about how this type might come about. And as you said, he avoids the whole technological angle um, for the sake of the dissertation, but he does say that there's this um, there's this uh, opportunity for almost an accidental type of this nature to come out of a crossbreeding of races. That is, individuals who don't come specifically from one ethnic group or another or one culture or another, but are actually a combination of the two. And the reason for this is a little bit uh, odd. It's not some sort of hybrid vigor argument. Um, it doesn't really have a particularly genetic basis, uh, at least in the way that it's presented in the book. Um, but it has to do with the inner tension in the soul of an individual who is caught between two worlds and what that individual has to undergo in, in a psychological or spiritual way in order to actually uh, uh, you know, overcome their potential. Now, he notes that, you know, Oftentimes, this isn't going to work. Uh, someone just, you know, comes out as they are, and they're just like a normal person, or they're mediocre, or, or worse. Um, but he does say in this last section of the book that this is one potential avenue by which uh, a um, a higher type might arise out of such an individual who has this inner conflict and finds a way to resolve it. Um, so I just wanted to leave that uh, as a sort of exploratory puzzle for the reader you can go um read the final chapter and get his uh his exact words on that i will let costin speak for himself um all napoleon right. was a corsican so right right who knows 
yeah. yeah and on the uh, genetic technology advances in in um genetics which have been very rapid um in recent years and will continue to be um that's certainly one dimension of the technology that i had in mind right yeah so uh i i think that's yeah that's maybe an entire book in itself um <laughs> the genetics genetic technology and uh the, the rebirth of philosophy the rebirth of philosophy <laughs> yeah sequel <laughs> um all right so i i think it's time now to get into the last section of the book which is really more of a an appendix of sorts um that has to do with the uh strauss heavy debate am i pronouncing that correctly um i think so roughly yeah uh and i'm personally not uh, familiar with these letters. Uh, I've read Natural Right in History. Um, I talked to Michael Millerman sometime back about Strauss. We did a whole episode on it. I've read excerpts of, from On Tyranny, but uh, I'm not familiar with this particular exchange. Um, and basically, it has to do with this debate between Strauss and Kohevi. It's important to note that in the very beginning of the introduction, uh, Kostin uses a quote from Kohevi. And in this articulation of uh, his his position on Strauss and Kohevi, he seems to be taking Kohevi's side in their arguments relating to philosophy and its relationship to nature. Um, do you have any words you want to say briefly about this sort of last segment? So on tyranny, not just the initial piece by Strauss, but the entire collection of um, letters that went back and forth is very well worth reading, very well worth study. It is quite subtle. Um, it gets into, if you're interested in the whole issue of globalism and world government, um, that is very much implicated in the mix on Kohevi's side. Um, Kohevi was a uh, kind of Hegelian who, who was actually supportive of, of that kind of direction. Um, Strauss very much was not, um, but they were very good friends and uh, had this very intense um, interchange. I, I don't know that we want to um, try to parse through that too much. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it, it is pretty subtle and, and complicated. Yeah. So. I I, I think, I mean, he says in the initial uh, introduction that uh, he does not refer to himself as a Straussian. Uh, he even goes as far as to say that, uh, you know, whatever he might have gathered from Strauss is not, uh, it's sort of almost incidental to the core argument, um, and that it's not a fundamentally Straussian uh, reading or book. Um, but he does feel the need, uh, I think, mostly because of his academic pedagogy to uh, sort of do a treatment of Strauss here at the end, um, and essentially just says that one of the issues with Strauss, Straussian, Straussianism, uh, or the Straussian project, is that it doesn't deal fundamentally with the emergence of philosophy. Really, it's just sort of continuation and pedagogy, right? So Strauss is concerned with preservation of classic political philosophy, uh, the ability to continue teaching it, and in a way, he has to make certain um, he has to make certain uh, sacrifices. Uh, in order to allow that to happen. And so we can speculate about what that might mean. Maybe it involves a kind of corruption of the actual message. 
Um, but you have to remember Strauss is writing uh, basically for, you know, Cold War American philosophy departments <laughs> and really trying to preserve the classical tradition in that context. Strauss is a complicated figure and and I I would it, it it's I, I I think it's good to be careful about trying to offer um broad interpretations because um he he is pretty subtle himself and it's easy to get things wrong um I I will simply note a couple things. Um, one, Strauss himself said that for a good decade he was a Nietzschean and basically believed everything. This is sort of a this is a quote from him. He believed every word of Nietzsche that he read that he understood. Um, and this was all throughout his twenties, not not like as a teenager. This was after he had a doctorate. After he'd earned his doctorate from very exacting German universities, basically the decade after that, he was a a hardcore Nietzschean. Um, needless to say, you will often not hear American Straussians um, dwell on that fact. It is not necessarily evident from his subsequent writings, and one can ask the question: What relationship? do his subsequent writings have to that prior disposition? I think one thing that is clear is, and this, you know, Heidegger comes into this as well, is Strauss himself was a Jewish refugee from Germany in World War II. And um, got out, went initially to France, then to Britain, then to the US and spent the rest of his life in the US. And his desire to avoid tyranny in certain constructions is perfectly sincere, I think. And part of what is underwriting the discussion in on tyranny is, is that desire, that desire to find a way to avoid tyranny. And um, he is quite aware of the Nietzschean interpretation of Plato and what Plato is doing. And in his own writings, he adopts a different sort of um, relationship to Plato where he's taking the platonic program more at face value. So, so even if he agrees with Nietzsche's interpretation of what Plato is, was doing, hmm. Strauss's own position toward that is, yeah, and that was right to do. <laughs> that was right to try to preserve, you know, this sort of space for order in the city so that philosophy itself could continue in a somewhat separate sphere um, because the, the city can get very bad. You know, trust me, <laughs> I, I, I've seen the city get very bad, you know, I, I think was sort of his perspective. Hmm. Um, and um, so in a way, he's taking some of the Nietzschean, some of Nietzsche's insights, but then going in a different direction. 
and saying there is quite legitimate reason to want to preserve good enough present orders, whether that be liberal democracy in the 1950s or whatever that might be. And um, it doesn't mean that he actually believed in liberal democracy in some strong, grounded way. He may, it, it could simply be um, that he viewed it as a good enough regime in which other possibilities could be pursued. Um, so I, I think I have not said anything that does too much violence to Strauss's um, perspective. So, so part of the problem with the whole notion of Straussian or Straussianism is that, um, you know, earlier we were talking about the whole phenomena of um, losing the joke within the Platonic yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, the, the students and grand students and grand grand students of Plato weren't necessarily on the same page as what Plato himself was doing. Well, mm. I, I, I think it would be fair to observe that that may be true among some of Strauss's students as well, that they have a kind of relationship to liberal democracy um, that would be, um, let's just say, much simpler than Strauss's. And yeah, I, I think I agree. And this is part of why you may not hear, you, there's a kind of a discomfort um, when discussion of these quotes from Strauss about how he believed, you know, there was a decade of his life when he believed literally everything Nietzsche ever wrote. Um, you know, people people kind of look at that and go, uh huh, um, yeah, next page. Um, yeah. All right. Well, so I think we've done a very uh, worthwhile and uh, valiant effort of trying to give people a very a decently thorough overview of the book itself in a real academic treatment. Neither you or myself, uh, as far as I know, are academics uh, per not... se. I don't have any appointments. You don't have any appointments. We are merely uh, you know, uh, enthusiasts of political philosophy. And in that sense, I would say that I think it's fair to claim that uh, for a PhD thesis, this is a relatively accessible book. It's quite popular. I think it's made some really important contributions. Um, we will see in due time uh, what its actual ultimate reception is. Uh, maybe that takes 10 years, maybe 100, maybe 1,000. I don't know. But um, any final thoughts on uh, selective breeding and the birth of philosophy to leave people with? I would say that the book is both readable and well worth reading. Um, that it is not a fluke or coincidence that it has done so well. Um, that the sort of enthusiasm around it um, is well warranted. That uh, there is a very great deal one can learn from it, even if one disagrees. Uh, disagreeing is fine. Um, people, it's, it's a big book that includes, it has a lot of different dimensions, a lot of different moving parts. And, um, you know, there will be people who agree with some of its 
main lines of interpretation, say around the Gorgias or Plato, um, who may, you know, there may be other smaller aspects that they disagree with or, or, or what have you. I mean, all over the place. And um, that's all fine. I think uh, discussing that is fine. And um, not only the book itself, but a lot of its references. I mean, it's a great set of um, things to dig further into if you're interested in this material. Um, of course, it points a great deal to, uh, well, I mean, really, I, I could just go the whole thing. I mean, Pindar is mm. very well worth reading and studying if you know if you like poetry and if you don't you should um you know the gorgias but not just the gorgias i mean the the plato's dialogues in general are are just an endless sea of um of uh reflection of uh, nietzsche of course um there's a there's uh, there's some machiavelli in there we didn't get into a little bit yeah 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 but those are sort of the main um parts and you know, there are people who spend entire careers studying just one of those. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's awesome stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Um, it's been great having you on. I'm glad we got the chance to do this, and I'm excited for it to come out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think everyone should go and uh, read the book if you have any questions about it. There's a lot of speculation. A lot of it's very unfounded or with, you know, very superficial interpretations of like the introduction or or what they think about the author and who the author may or may not be and i think um it really deserves for uh some serious uh reflection and contemplation and if you're going to make a criticism of the book or say anything about it uh you should at least uh, make a good effort to uh become familiar with it so uh thanks so much Stephen, for for coming on and um have a great day hey, everyone thank you for having me great talking to you all right